You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. The BBC, Washington Post, and New York Times have all run headlines about it. It's been called a pandemic hit and helped countless people make it through quarantine. Unless you've been living under a rock, or maybe you're an actual fossil, you've heard about the video game Animal Crossing. My name is Elizabeth Dowdell, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news and stories and ideas. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. While you listen to this week's episode, I invite you to think about how you explore and find significance in what it means to be Treaty people. This week, we're talking about the Nintendo video game Animal Crossing new horizons. Or at least we're going to start there. A few weeks ago we caught up with Terra Informa alumni Sophia Osborne for an episode about the computer game The Sims. While she's not busy writing and winning community radio awards, Sophia actually makes another podcast. Because we are such great pals and we go way back, we invited Sophia and her co-host Olivia Debercier to take over the Terra Informa airwaves. In this episode, Sophia and Olivia will treat us to an episode of their Animal Crossing-inspired podcast, Beyond Blathers. Before we get to that episode within an episode, I sat down with Sophia and Olivia to find out why it was important for them to make the show. Uh, the premise of the show is it's uh, a science podcast, but inspired by Animal Crossing. Our podcast goes and, and talks about those individual species that you can catch in the game in some detail. Kind of how it started was I was in Scotland in the UK when the pandemic hit and I had to come home and I knew I would have to do the 14 day quarantine in my room here at my mom's house. So I got the Nintendo Switch and Animal Crossing to like pass the time for those two weeks. And Olivia already had Animal Crossing. Just splurged on it. I was just kind of thinking about how fun it was to have the museum in the game. And I really liked Blathers' explanations for everything. So like if you don't know, Blathers is the owl that runs the museum. And his name is like a play on how he blathers on about the specimens you bring to him. But I was actually thinking, you know, it would be cool to hear even more about these species. I always wanted to work on something with Olivia. So yeah, I approached her with the idea that she could maybe explain more about the insects, fish, and fossils you find in Animal Crossing. And she was really on board with the idea. So went from there and then we launched in June and we've had quite a bit of success with it and it's so much fun. I've always wanted to do some kind of natural history project, whether it's videos or podcasting, but it's kind of difficult to find a niche that is sort of an animal feature form of media. When, when Sophia suggested this one, it seems like a, a very specific niche that could be filled. 
So speaking of niche, is this a show for diehard Animal Crossing fans or is it a little bit more accessible? Sophia's described it as like 95% animals, 5% Animal Crossing. And I think that's a pretty accurate depiction of it. So if you don't play, like, don't worry about it. Overall, the audience, I think we've tried to keep it pretty family friendly, but also like interesting enough information from both like a scientific and a conservation standpoint that a general audience or even an audience with a bit more expertise in wildlife might be able to enjoy it and learn a bit more about critters that I guess don't get a lot of attention often because it's bugs and fish, which I wouldn't call the most charismatic taxonomic groups. Yeah, it's really interesting, I think, to just not ever do mammals. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also have this whole paleo side of it from the fossils. I think there's a lot there for everyone, I hope. I was going to just take a minute to toot Olivia's horn and say that Olivia is also a really amazing artist and her episode art that she does for each episode is just amazing. Like you have to check it out on our Instagram or Twitter. Even if you don't listen to the podcast, just like go look at the illustrations because they're really gorgeous and she puts so much time and careful energy into recreating the animals that we talk about and especially I think the paleo art is so cool because it's like her interpretation and I feel really lucky to like have such an amazing artist to work with on this. I think what's really nice about the podcast and what one reason I really enjoy doing it is you know talking about environmental science can be really draining and exhausting and quite sad sometimes so it's nice to have something that's a bit more positive and fun and celebrating the unique and just special characteristics of nature and what's out there. So I I really enjoy getting to just focus in on what makes these creatures and these species special. You're listening to Terra Informa. That was Sophia Osborne and Olivia DeBercier being their own hype people, and sharing what you need to know about their new podcast, Beyond Blathers. We invited these two Terra Informa alumni to take over our airwaves with one of their episodes. So without further ado, here is Beyond Blathers, Monarch Butterflies. Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Olivia DeBercier. And I'm Sophia Osborne. So we told you last week that we were ending off season one (laughs) and that you wouldn't have to listen to us for at least a few weeks, but here we are with a bonus episode for you. If you're a new listener who found us from the Polygon article that just came out, Hi, welcome. We're really excited to have you. That article is a big deal to us, and we wanted to celebrate with an extra episode. So Olivia is going to tell us all about the monarch butterfly, which was just added to the game in the fall update. So it's also kind of a celebration of fall and autumnal things. 
Yeah, the uh, the monarch is very autumnal in its color scheme. It's got that like cabin core aesthetic, so it's a, it's a good one for fall. And yes, hi, welcome to all the new listeners. Uh, we're so excited to have you. And of course, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow us at Beyond Blathers on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. So let's get into it. If you ask Blathers to tell you about the monarch, he'll say. Did you know the monarch butterfly migrates south for the winter and returns north for the summer? Indeed, these horrid orange beasties do not tolerate the cold and travel 3,000 miles to escape the winter. During the journey, they cluster together in trees by the thousands just to stay warm. Imagine hordes of the foul flittering fiends huddled together in one place. If only they'd put on their tiny coats instead. Oh, little, little butterfly coats. That is actually a cute image, but... I kind of like that. <laughs> and Blathers does have beautiful alliteration, like... Really does. He's an eloquent owl man. But yeah, Olivia, can you tell us a bit about the actual species? Yeah, so the Latin name for the monarch is Danaeus plexippus, and they're pretty big butterflies. Like, they are probably familiar to you. They're those orange and black butterflies. They're very, like, classical looking. Uh, you see them a lot in art and on stickers and things like that. Their wingspan is about 3.7 to 4 inches, so yeah, pretty big. And that coloring, that bright orange, it's it's a warning of toxicity. So often, as we've mentioned before in the bug world, if you've got bright colors, it probably means, like, either you're venomous or you're toxic to eat. So probably stay away from those. They might be faking it, but just in case. I didn't realize that they're toxic. Why Why are they toxic? They're toxic because monarch caterpillars eat milkweed, and that's all they eat. So monarchs, when they're laying their eggs, will specifically lay their eggs on milkweed, because that way when the eggs hatch, the caterpillars can just start eating right away. They don't have to be, like, looking around for the right species. And so as they're eating, they're eating a bunch of those toxins, and that makes them, one, really bitter to eat if, like, you're a bird or a frog. So it's not a, a pleasant experience for those species. And it also helps them to be less appealing to parasites as well. So there's less chance of those caterpillars having like, you know, parasitic wasps or things like poking them with some eggs and eating them up. So yeah, that's also a nice defense for them. So where are they found? I know I see them sometimes around here in Vancouver where I live. Yeah, so I don't see them where I live. On occasion, we have like one or two come over here. Sometimes, yeah, you have like a weird number of monarchs, but yeah, not so many over here. They are, though, known for being kind of a North Central America species. But that's really just because of their really famous migration that happens between Mexico and Southern Canada and everything in between, basically. You can also, though, find them kind of all around the world. They're just non-migratory populations. So there's some in the Antilles, uh, in South America, the Iberian Peninsula, Polynesia, Oceania, more parts of Europe. Like, they've really spread out. And it doesn't seem super clear as to how this spread has occurred. So whether it's humans bringing milkweed around and spreading their eggs or, you know, they're they're pretty amazing flyers. Like, maybe they just flew over there. So yeah, there's a couple reasons that might be. But today we're mostly going to be talking about those migrating monarchs. So there's two 
classifications for those monarchs. There's the Western monarchs and there's the Eastern monarchs. The Western monarchs are west of the Rockies and the Eastern monarchs are going to be east. And those ones are overwintering in northern Mexico. So the northern Mexico are the Eastern monarchs versus the Western monarchs, which are overwintering in California. So Sophia, the ones that you would have in Vancouver, they're just going Vancouver, California over and over again. And basically what happens is for this migration, we need to know a little bit about butterfly biology, which is that butterflies have what we call emergences. So you're going to have these sort of population spikes in a way. What that means is butterflies will have multiple generations in a year or a season. And in the case of monarchs, it plays a really important role in their migration. So let's imagine you're a monarch in Mexico and these butterflies are overwintering in the mountains and they'll basically hang off branches of these big firs in these fir forests. And if you ever see pictures of this, it's crazy because they're like weighing the branches down. There's so many of them and they're just like all bundled up. And that's because they don't want to get super cold. They they aren't, you know, warm blooded like we are. So they have to stay nice and warm, even in Mexico in the winter. They have a very specific habitat need, so they need to be living in forests that are kind of protected from the wind, not too much sun, not too much frost. Frost will kill them. So yeah, very specific habitat needs. So that's where they are. These are very kind of rare locations. So we'll get into that a little bit more in terms of their conservation. And you'll also find that if you went there when all these monarchs are there, there's lots of dead monarchs that are scattered across the ground too. And those are just the monarchs that didn't survive the winter. But of course, you look up, there's just monarchs everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching this IMAX movie that did kind of traumatize me about monarchs because it had those just huge clumps of monarchs and yeah, the people standing in the field and they were just completely covered in monarchs and I think about it all the time. But it is really interesting that they do that. And I didn't know it was because they needed to keep warm and that makes a lot more sense and I find it less creepy now. It's kind of like the penguins and March of the Penguins. Like if you're clumped up, there's going to be less less wind. There's this really cool video too that we'll have to post in the social media. Phil Torres, who's like my favorite lepidopterist, he has this great video of him in Mexico And it's like the sound of all these butterflies when they take off. And it's like a very gentle sound. It almost sounds like like a stream in the distance. Like you can barely hear it, but it's kind of amazing because butterflies are so delicate and like you don't hear them flapping. Like that would be super creepy and weird, but they're just like, yeah, when there's that many, you do hear the sound. And how do they know how to fly north and like where they're going and everything? Yeah, this is like the most amazing thing to me is that, first of all, butterfly brains are ridiculously tiny. They have about 1 million neurons in their bodies. For reference, humans have 86 billion. So, but like in such a little bug with a little brain, not even really a brain, they have this ability to have internal clocks. So like with humans, you know, even if we didn't have a clock on, we would kind of know what time of the day it is. And they have that too but they're using their antenna and that helps to be their kind of internal clock to keep track of the day. They're mostly using the sun to guide them north. So like, let's say it's, they're headed north and it's the late afternoon. So they're gonna know, okay, the sun should be on my left. And that kind of gives them the ability to stay due north. So they're not perfect at it, but it's 
pretty darn good. Like, they can still get where they need to go. That's amazing. I, a human who have apparently 86 (laughs) billion neurons, do not know which way is north, like, 90% (laughs) of the time. It's just not useful to us, I guess. So, yeah, as they they move north, though, they're going to be eating nectar from flowers. And during that time, they're mating and laying eggs. This is where it gets, like, really kind of crazy. So lots of those monarchs, they're going to die on the way up to Canada. But their offspring, so the eggs they laid, those will hatch. You know, caterpillars will go, eat their food, make their little chrysalis. Those will open up. You'll have a nice new butterfly. And it'll move a little further north. It'll also have eggs. And you have these multiple generations happening. And those butterflies are only living, like, two to five weeks. So there's about four to five generations before they reach the northern U.S. and Canada. And, oh, my gosh, this just keeps getting crazier. Oh, so they get to Canada, or the northern U.S., and then eggs that are hatched there, they're going to be a little bit different from all the generations that came before them. Because when they hatch and they are fully formed butterflies, they will, one, be bigger, two, they won't have any reproductive organs, and they're like a mortal, sort of. <laughs> so they <laughs> live like eight times longer than a normal monarch. And I just think about if a human lived eight times longer than every other human, that's like, that's essentially immortal. I'm sorry, but that's insane. And they're going to head down south all the way back to Mexico. And they just know to do this. This is the craziest thing to me. They're just like, ah, my genetics tell me it's time to go south, even though my parents didn't do this or my grandparents didn't do this. So this whole time, they don't have any reproductive organs. Again, they're bigger. They're going to end up back in Mexico. They're going to overwinter. And then they're going to go back. So once the winter is over, many of them are going to start releasing a hormone that would have basically meant they had died much sooner and and some hormones that are going to allow them to have reproductive organs. So they'll start mating, laying eggs as they go up north through the U.S. And it's thought that even 10% of the monarchs that leave Mexico fly all the way back to Canada again. So those ones would probably be the ones that aren't releasing that, that hormone until later in their migration back to northern U.S. and Canada, which is amazing. Like, these are butterflies. These are bugs that are being born in Canada or northern U.S. And they're going to go all the way down to Mexico and then all the way back. It's amazing. It's amazing that they can do that and that they know to do that. It's possible that they haven't done this in generations in their family, but they just have the genes to know that that is the right thing to do. So yeah, it's amazing. um, And it's very dependent on that hormone. Yeah, that's just so interesting, though, and I didn't realize that it wasn't, like, all monarchs were doing this migration. Like, it's interesting that on the way up, it's, like, a relay race between different generations, and then sometimes it's, like, a marathon with just individuals. Yes, that's a a really good way of explaining it, because that's exactly what it is. I, I assumed it was just, like, a giant mass of monarchs all going up at once, but it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, so you alluded to it before, and probably a lot of our listeners will have heard about conservation issues with monarchs, but could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think what's amazing about monarchs, at least to me, and when I think about when I first started learning about monarchs as a kid, is that they're kind of one of the few charismatic insects that we have. Like, before people started really caring about bees... I feel like 2015, like 2016, people got really into bees. But before that, it was like, we didn't care that much 
in the public sphere about any particular insect, except for really monarchs, because they're so beautiful and they've got this amazing migration. And what's unfortunate about the whole situation is they're really, really under threat. You got to think this is a, a species that's going through three different countries, potentially, depending on which group it is. And that's a lot of barriers to be overcoming, especially in, in places that are so agricultural. So right now, what's kind of weird about it is they're not assessed by the IUCN Red List, which is usually the conservation status I give on this podcast. So there's no information there about them. I'm not sure why this is. <laughs> this will have to be a something we uncover later, maybe. In Canada, they are classified as endangered, though, so we know that their populations are going down. In Mexico, they're under special protection, same in the U.S. And the U.S. has a really, or at least used to have a very, very strong, at least compared to Canada, Endangered Species Act. And the monarchs are under review for listing under that act. People are pushing for them to be listed as endangered. Of course, with the politics in the U.S. right now and the Trump administration, they're really gutting the Endangered Species Act and the protections there. So that's probably going to be put on hold or if it hasn't already, which is quite unfortunate because what they're finding is that Western monarch butterflies, they've dropped about 97% of their average historic abundance between the 80s and the mid 2000s. So they're really, really plummeting right now. It's very bad. And they even just did, I think, a newer study. They had a, a problem with, even recently, with a lot of monarchs not making that migration. And it's dropped even 99% now since the 1980s. So, yeah, really bad. The eastern population, the estimates are more around, they've dropped 80%. Still not good. So the reasons for this, there's a bunch of reasons. One of them is lost milkweed. Unfortunately for them, they're not the kind of species that can just lay their eggs anywhere. They have to lay it on milkweed. So what ends up happening is in places like in the U.S. where you have these huge swaths of agriculture, like especially the Corn Belt, a lot of that milkweed has disappeared for monoculture usage. So lots of planting of the same species that isn't going to be milkweed. And so, yeah, that development has been a big problem as well as pesticide use. So lots of agricultural plants, their seeds are treated with pesticides, which can hurt the butterflies that are feeding off of their nectar, as well as just general pesticide use. As we mentioned before, with like other insect species, that's a big problem. There's also habitat loss. So deforestation in Mexico and Southern California in particular, where they're overwintering, like I mentioned, they need really specific habitats to be able to overwinter. And when those don't exist or they're getting smaller, that's definitely going to threaten their populations. Third biggest one really is climate change. So as it warms up, there's going to be some changes in their migration patterns. They're going to be going further north into Canada, which makes their migration longer, which makes them more at risk of not making it the whole way. Another problem is that they're finding that climate change may even change the toxicity levels in milkweed. So it would reduce the toxicity in the plant, which would make the caterpillars more susceptible to things like parasites, which would otherwise not want to eat them or, or utilize them because they've got that toxicity in them. It sounds like there's so many compounding issues and threats that they're facing. Yeah, and like, it's it's unfortunate too because you find this issue with migratory species where you're dealing with multiple countries' laws and 
their politics. In researching about the monarchs, one of the problems that came up was the, the Trump border wall. It was going to cut through this butterfly sanctuary in Texas. And even though butterflies can fly, they couldn't fly over that. So barriers like that, those physical human walls between countries can severely damage ecosystems. So it's rough. It's a rough time for monarchs. Yeah, and I mean, I was reading up a bit about this whole issue as well, and we'll definitely link some articles about how the border wall issue is impacting the monarchs. But there's also like, you know, there's been murders of monarch butterfly conservationists in Mexico. It's really scary. It's fraught. Like, it's very politically fraught territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't think that this, like, butterfly would would be a political thing. Yeah, but I mean, this border wall is not just causing problems for butterflies. It's cutting through a lot of really important wildlife sanctuaries. That's a hugely biodiverse area for North America in Texas and the the Rio Grande. Lots of mammal species, lots of birds. Yeah, the birds, they're amazing. So yeah, it's really sad. It can definitely feel hopeless and like there's not a lot that we can do, but is there anything that listeners can do about trying to save the monarch? Well, for once, I do actually have things that they can do, which is really great. Oftentimes these like environmental issues can have like really big, large scale solutions and it makes it really hard for just like the average human to be able to do much. But in this case, you can. Number one thing, plant milkweed. And very, very important, I need everyone to listen very carefully. Make sure that if you are planting flowers, make sure that they are plants that are native to where you live. Do not go and buy a pack of seeds that says wildflower seeds for butterflies without making absolutely certain that these are the correct species for where you live. This is such a big problem for any place in Canada and the US. So yeah, ask your local nature center or a local environmental organization, Google it. There are so many resources for monarchs. I could not believe, I could never sift through the amount of resources that are out there to support monarch butterflies and just butterflies in general. So definitely Google what species are good for your area. And a reminder that there's about 73 species of milkweed. So just because a plant says milkweed doesn't mean that it's gonna be good for a monarch. They'll only use about 30% of milkweed species in the U.S. So do your research, especially if you're in an urban area where there's not a lot of plants. If you're living in a rural area, maybe look into how your farm or your acreage, how you can make that a more friendly place for butterflies, especially if you're living in a place with lots of monocultures around. If you're not living in a place with monarchs, try and um, keep your ear out for ways you can support the Endangered Species Act in the U.S. or in Canada. You can keep your ear out for petitions you can sign that are going to help protect butterflies or help strengthen the Species at Risk Act, which is what we have here in Canada. They're already listed as endangered, which is super helpful. But yeah, those are some tips. Yeah, we'll try to link some resources on our social media. But I mean, thank you so much, Olivia. We definitely encourage you to read a lot more about monarchs and yeah, celebrate them. It's fall. But thanks everyone so much for listening. If you're a new listener, don't forget to subscribe and follow us at Beyond Blathers on Instagram and Twitter. We're going to have some updates coming out about exciting things like our second season and our merch store. So we are actually going to be taking a little (laughs) bit of a break, but please tune in in the future Mm -hmm. to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. 
Bye. Bye. You're listening to Terra Informa. That was an episode of the podcast Beyond Blathers, a conservation and nature series inspired by the Nintendo video game Animal Crossing New Horizons and hosted by Terra Informa alumni Sophia Osborne and Olivia de Bercier. To learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils in the game, look for episodes of Beyond Blathers wherever you find your podcasts. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, Tara at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Tara Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. I've been your host, Elizabeth Dowdell. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.